0: Why has the data not been shared? No, it isn't the isolate of a virus. That's
1: the issue. No, it isn't the isolate as a virus. That's the issue. Welcome to the Last American Vagabond. I'm very excited to be joined yet again today by Dr. Andrew Kaufman to discuss an incredibly contentious topic, which in and of itself describes demonstrates how ridiculous the world is today that we can't have these kind of conversations without it being, you know, contentious and wrong and dangerous. But he's joining me today to yet again discuss the concept of germ theory versus terrain theory, something that has been done. In, in, more times than I can count today. And which is important because this needs to be discussed. And this is as my audience is well aware of something that I'm still skeptical of yet, as I've said many times, very, very interested in, and as I've said again, many times, something that I find to be one of the, probably the most sound theories in this conversation, but I don't feel that I feel that I still have questions. And this is really just about being as objective as possible. And so I wanted to bring him back on to show that this is about finding the truth at all costs. So today we're going to go through this topic once again. Thank you. So, uh, Thank you so much for joining me today, Andrew. Because I know you're very busy.
2: Ryan, it's great to be here. I appreciate the invitation.
1: Yeah, it's. I mean, you're you're kind of the lead on this topic, it would seem, or at least in the very beginning, you dro- drove this out at a time when it was, you know, w- whether people think you're right or wrong. At a time when that was a very contentious thing to do, and and obviously there was negative side effects of that. So I, as again, the point of whether people think you're right or wrong, that's a very courageous thing to do, you know, to stand there and do that, discuss something that people are going to attack you for. So I always like to commend that to start it off. But the first thing I want to talk about is the clip right there we that I played in the beginning, because I'm actually going to want to skip over, for the most part, the isolation discussion and get right into the, the meat of the terrain versus germ theory and what that and the difference is there. But if you had comments on that, since and the other thing I want to say before we jump into it is I want to start this off today for, for actually for, for your best interest, because I know it's hard to go through this like on a quick summation of what we talked about before under the assumption that people watching this today have already watched our previous interview. Dr. Andrew Kaufman interview, virus isolation, terrain theory, and COVID-19, which I believe was actually just mentioned in David Icke's new book, that specific interview. Um, so we'll assume that people have seen those previous discussions. So to start off, if you had comments on the idea of the Chinese CDC in isolation and rather just that overall discussion, and then we can jump into the terrain germ theory discussion.
2: Well, you know, I've I've talked about that uh, uh, ad nauseum, but, um, you know, it is vindicating to see a comment, although it was a little bit out of context. So I'm not sure exactly what that means, but you can find a similar uh, statement from uh, Luke Montagnier. Uh, on video where he was asked, you know, why do you um, have to purify the virus? Because um, that, that's what we're really talking about with isolation is purification, because virologists, you know, use it in a different, uh, with a different meaning. But when this question was asked of Luc Montagnier, why do you need to purify the virus? He said to show that it's real. And that's really what we're talking about uh, with all those experiments. So I would encourage you to go back and, uh, of course, watch that video, but also look at the statement on virus isolation on my website, which uh, was a collaboration with me, Tom Cowan and Sally Fallon, where we really explain the whole isolation issue and what the significance is. So you can check that out for yourself.
1: Absolutely. And and I will again point to our previous interview where I thought you did a great job e- explaining that exact topic as well, because that was one I was really focused on at the time as well. And I think I've, it's pretty easy to point out that I, at the very least, the, the clearest way to put it is that I, I have not seen evidence that it has been isolated. And I think that's a o- very obvious statement that can be verified. And I've also pointed out that that then could mean that there's other possibilities. I, that's just being as objective as possible, but I think it's very obvious it hasn't been. Now that being stated, that opens up the conversation for a lot of questions, right? If that's the case, why and so on. So this is where this broadens into the idea here. So if you could start off, uh, again, assuming people saw the previous interview with giving a brief explanation of this concept of germ theory versus terrain theory and and really the concept of whether, viruses exist. And I know that's an impossible thing to surmise in a short period of time, but doing your best to start us off. And then I have lots of questions to get into.
2: Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, you know, in a nutshell, germ theory is the theory, um, you know, not it's not a law or a fact, but it's the theory that there are microscopic germs, you know, like uh, bacteria or fungi or even viruses that uh, essentially uh, invade our body and grow inside of our body, thereby making us Sick, and there's very little we can do about this. And uh, we can transfer these, you know, germs from person to person. Um, And essentially that is the germ theory in a nutshell. And then there's the terrain theory, which is actually quite familiar to everyone already because people are taking supplements of bacteria to make them healthier. And that's uh, exactly what you're doing is changing the terrain of your body to try and um, clean it up and make it free of illness. And the common analogy that people point to, which is a good one, is if you have a goldfish in a bowl who is ill, the germ theory approach would be to vaccinate it or treat it with antibiotics. And the terrain theory treatment would be to simply change the water and put clean water back in the tank.
0: Right,
1: and it's funny that I just happened to have this up because I was watching her video. That she actually just played that showed the same meme. So it's and it's a great analogy to think about, right? And this is this is the the primary part of this that really resonates with me is that it's about. It's it's not, and this is the idea of like holistic versus kind of the alley of the, the type of medicine we use today where it's about you're keeping your body healthy and allowing your body to do do the work itself as opposed to putting things in you know inside your body to fight something you know the idea of something that we're assuming based on what we're told is there and I think what's interesting to start off is the idea of germs and bacteria right or just let's say bacteria because we, the germ is a broader term so clearly you can you would say bacteria exists right as opposed to a virus so could you yes. give us the, could you give us the difference <laughs> between those two things
2: yeah absolutely so bacteria are you know a type of single-celled organism that is capable of carrying out all the functions of life like metabolism and reproduction and m- movement motility all of those things and they are you know in the micrometer size so you can see them under a light microscope although they're quite small under a light microscope, you can uh, grow them in a pure culture where you separate out a particular species of bacteria um, and grow it. And that is not how bacteria grows in nature, but you can still do this in the laboratory readily and do all kinds of experiments um, to study it. So uh, bacteria are ubiquitous in nature. Um, They're all over our body. Um, In fact, the cells of microorganisms in our bodies outnumber our human cells by about 10 to 1, depending on which estimate um, you look at. So these are real things, and they're everywhere, and uh, they have a very important role in nature.
1: And, that, and that's one of the things I think is, is often misunderstood or just not really explained well in school, like so many other things, that there's a lot of good and bad bacteria, right? I mean, that, that's the whole part, the way the body well, works. Well,
2: So I, I would contend that there are good and bad humans, but not good and bad bacteria. Okay. Okay. Um, I, and I know you're, then that gets into the concept of
1: the body being healthy, being the catalyst or, or rather sick being the catalyst for why negative things happen, not necessarily the outside microbe or, or if for lack of a better term or using the incorrect term, is that correct?
2: Yeah, no, no, that's a, that's a good word. And cause you know, the use of the word germ is actually a little problematic in this context because the root of the word germ really means new growth or new life like we germinate seeds, mm-hmm. right, when right. we start them growing. And so talking about it as an agent of disease is sort of the inverse of that meaning. So mm-hmm. microbe or microorganism is probably a better word uh, to use, absolutely. But if we look at the role of bacteria and other microorganisms in nature, they are what's called saprophytes. So what this means is that when there's any um dying or diseased organic matter like from an organism and this could be fallen leaves off the trees right it could be um, a dead animal whatever whatever dead or dying flesh um, plant or animal the bacteria and fungi they break it down into its you know constituent elements it's sort of like nature's recyclers Mm -hmm. and we can you know see this process happening in the forest very readily or if you have a compost pile um you know you can observe this and the the truth is that these microorganisms serve the same role in our bodies so that when part of our body becomes diseased or uh, there are cells that are dying or or dead then our body actually calls upon the bacteria it recruits them from within to go to that site of the body to serve that cleanup recycling saprophytic function and while they're there um, they are gobbling up, you know, damaged and dead debris and cells, and they make waste products that uh, cause inflammation. And that inflammation actually helps us clear the debris and all of the, the damaged tissue and whatever toxins may be there, but it causes us discomfort. And that's what we understand as illness. But, but actually, according to terrain theory, that is the Um, rehabilitation or recovery phase of the illness that we experience symptoms. and, And if we allow it to go to completion and use things to support that function, then we actually will be then fully healed and we won't have to express that illness again.
1: So this is actually something I had, was going to ask later in the show, but this is a good time for it. So what? So hypothetically speaking, you're in this position where something is infected, and uh, and the argument is being that you should take a vaccine or or something like that. And you're in the, let's just make it simple, and say you have something, let's say on your arm with a cut that gets infected. What would be the appropriate action in in your mindset to take? As you know, so that the current mindset is to treat that problem on your arm. Are you are you saying that the idea would be to treat internally at that moment?
2: Well, no, it's a more of a matter of how you treat the arm. Mm -hmm. Okay, so uh, and this is a good example, because I've actually had this particular problem It's called cellulitis, where you get skin infection, and it can happen from a cut from an, you know, ingrown hair, a variety of things can can result in this process going out. But I, I used to have this issue on a recurrent basis, until I actually discovered the natural healing techniques and began using them. So what conventional germ theory would say is that for some reason, and they don't have an explanation, by the way, the bacteria has invaded the skin and now caused an infection of the skin. So it's actually growing in the skin and multiplying, right? And eating your flesh and your immune system is trying to fight it off. That's what they say is going on with a skin infection or cellulitis. And they would treat this by giving you antibiotics, which will kill those particular bacteria um, that are you know growing in that uh, infection or they say are and supposedly that will lead to relief from the infection and it does sometimes or often uh, lead to a resolution of that infection but not as uh, you know quickly or briskly as you might expect and so before I kind of you know discovered these principles I was treating these with antibiotics I was using mostly uh topical antibiotics, like that you, you know, uh, basically that you bacitracin that you put right on the skin. But in the past, I have also taken, um, you know, oral antibiotics that go throughout your whole body to uh, treat these infections. And usually I would have to take it for a while um, for it to, you know, help resolve the infection. But it kept coming back. Um, And that was the problem. And that's what happens many times with antibiotic treatment. So, once I discovered and learned about natural healing and had a new understanding of what was going on, now what I think happens in a cellulitis is that your body is expressing toxins in the skin. Now, these could come from foreign material that you get a cut and the foreign material enters the site of the cut and causes toxicity right there, or it could Be that your immune system is trying to get rid of toxins and somehow it's convenient in your body to express them through the skin. And this often happens when people are deficient in certain nutrients like collagen, where their skin becomes thin and easily penetrated. Um, But for whatever reason, so then I was having these toxins basically damaging my skin and then the bacteria were coming there to try and eat up the damage and clear it out. Mm. And so in the natural healing terrain theory approach, um, you would basically support eliminating that toxin from the site. So I would generally talk about two things. One is to just increase your general removal of toxins from your body, and that could be done by something like enemas uh, or laxatives. But then you wanna do something right on the site of the infection, and so you use a solvent that will penetrate the skin and dissolve those toxins so that they can get into the blood and pass through your liver and out of your body.
1: So to be very clear, when you're saying the toxin, I think people could misconstrue that as you talking about the bacteria that caused the infection based on their misunderstanding. Right, no, no,
2: yeah, so I'm talking about something of a totally different nature, a toxic material that could be something that you were exposed to on your skin and it got through if you cut the skin in that area, like let's say you're working, you know, in a garage on the car and you get some motor oil in the skin or something like that, right? That Mm -hmm. would be a poison internally. Or it could be from things that you ate or were exposed to even through vaccines or other, uh, you know, exposures that your body is trying to manage and store safely, but it then sees an opportunity to purge it out of your body, like if you get a cut on your skin. So your immune system brings it to that site to try to get rid of it, And they kind of get stuck there um, temporarily, right? Until maybe it forms pus and then drains out or your immune system relocates it, you know, to somewhere else in your body where it can be safely stored without causing damage. But this kind of stuff is going on all the time in your body because we're exposed to so many different toxic constituents. And we even create some of our own through our own metabolic pathways, especially if we're in a state of severe, you know, stress and fear. Um, or things like that. But we we get them from, you know, every angle, the air we breathe, everything we put on our skin, even our clothing, our food, yeah. you know, so it, it's sort of ubiquitous. And so if your, your immune system's trying to get them out through your skin, and that's where they cause the irritation and the damage to your cells. And so by using a solvent, then you're going to be able to essentially dissolve whatever this poison is that's in that skin area into the blood where your immune system can either store it somewhere else safely, or if you're doing the enemas, it will just dump it out into your stool and and it'll go in the toilet. And so the first time I tried this, because, you know, like I said, for years, I had been having these recurrent infections. I didn't really know the cause, Um, but so I, I went through, a, did a detox, and I experienced one of these infections again, and I used turpentine as the solvent. And I just put one or two drops right on the skin, uh, like three times a day, and in 24 hours, it was almost completely resolved. And I'd never experienced that quick of relief uh, previously from any other, and I like I said, I took both oral antibiotics and used topical antibiotics. And since that time, I have had zero recurrences of those skin infections. They completely went away. And that's
1: very, very telling. I mean, that that in and of itself says everything, but so to go back real quickly to the toxic part of it. So what you're talking about is treating it from two sides. One being internally that your body just has toxins in general, and then specifically on the site of something that could have been on there. And th- this is what's so interesting to me. And so, so it's, It's about the holistic idea of your body being healthy or specifically the site being healthy, not necessarily the outside bacteria. Like, so the, what you're saying to make it clear, maybe for those that are still trying to wrap their mind around this is the bacteria are doing what they're doing because they're trying to remove the problem from your body. Is that a correct way to put that?
2: That's exactly right. They're trying to, you know, clean up the mess and get it back, get you back to a state of health.
1: Very interesting. And it's obvious why people are so... That this this is a mind shattering concept for people that have never heard this before. And that's why it's so important to, you know, carefully walk right. people through why it, why it does make sense too, as much as it may be like, that's the thing that first caught me about this is this discussion seems to clarify a lot of things that I had before not had answers to, but it also does open up a few other questions, which is hopefully what we can talk about today. You you mentioned the no explanation. I found that very telling. Could you add to that? Like, so there th- there's no explanation for why they say that happens. Is that what you're saying first? For why they,
2: why they say, which happens? Uh, and you're talking oh, about why, infection on you arm. Develop cellulitis. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well, they, you know, just say, oh, you know, I mean, if now, if you had a cut, right, they would say, oh, the bacteria from the wound invaded your skin and caused it. So they would have that. But cellulitis occurs many times in people that don't have a, you know, uh, a lesion or a skin, you know, they're, they're, they they are they do not have a scrape or a cut or anything like that, it it just occurs more spontaneously. And this is more common in people who are more toxic, right? right? Like people who have a lot of chronic illness like vascular disease and diabetes, which is just really toxic material in their blood vessels or other parts of their body. And so they express them and they really, you know, they say that these conditions weaken your immune system and that's why you're more susceptible to it, but they can't point to kind of a smoking gun You know, so to speak, or anything like that.
1: And we'll touch on the immune system in a moment because I find that to be very revealing in the kind of a crossover. But what, what it does, it, it, it doesn't make sense to me that you would argue, they would argue that the bacteria on your arm that was already there is only suddenly now a problem because there was a cut like that. That doesn't seem. And that's right. the point that that's right. the lack of explanation. It just happens in that circumstance to be a problem. And well, see, that's the kind of undefined explanation that does not sit well with me.
2: So this um, really contradicts the uh, Koch's first postulate also, which says that, you know, if the germ causes disease, it has to be present in people with the disease but also as a corollary not present in people without the disease so if we have a bacteria you know like staphylococcus which is usually what is blamed for these uh, skin infections well every person has staphylococcus bacteria on their skin so why would it cause disease only in some people it really goes against the main tenets of germ theory but since they didn't observe this to be the case then and they still want germ theory to fit, then you change your answer and say, well, oh, well, sometimes the bacteria, you know, becomes pathogenic for whatever reason or, you know, something else, a, a diasthesis type of uh, exp- explanation also.
1: Which basically just comes down to we don't know for sure, but we're trust what we think is our consent. you know the whole that's the joke that people are sort of beginning to realize in today's context that scientific consensus doesn't u- doesn't necessarily
2: mean that they know something. they're just agreeing upon a conclusion that they all think is ac- well, accurate. you know you know so many of the times, and this is of course not just among scientists, but people you know um, articulate their strong opinions about X, y, or z issue. But they don't realize that most of the time, in fact, almost all the time with regular people, those opinions are not their own opinions. They are just parroting what they heard some person in a position of authority or a designated intellectual uh, has said. So for me, like I never questioned any of these um, things about germ theory until I took it upon myself to actually look at the scientific experiments, that's when I saw that everything was not the way that we were told, you know, by looking at the, the actual, um, evidence and data.
1: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. The path I've been on during this whole time frame. I mean, I, I've always been one to want to find the source material on whatever the conversation is. I mean, that's, it's crazy that that is a weird thing today. Like that should be the ultimate point. It's like, we don't, you're taking authority's word for it if you don't do that. But during this whole COVID-19 event, It's been it's been a process for me as many as has for many people. And I've really just immersed myself in excuse me, in trying to understand not just the actual conclusions, but how they reach them and what the processes they use to get there. And it's been a process. It's been a journey for all of us. You know, and I think that's the problem is they're aggressively trying to drive people the other way no 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 you don't you're not smart enough to look at that stuff right Right. tell you and you know and that 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 speaks to something i might i might ask your opinion on at the end in regard to the who and arguments they've made about the general health standing today but we'll get to that it's not as related to the interview today but i'm sure you've seen in the past where there's been a lot of times they've called out the cdc for pandemics of fear and different things like that and it just speaks to that even internally they know that there's a lot of you know, politics playing, playing roles. And that's, that's the problem with something like this is you can't have an honest discussion about something like this when politics are leading the charge, you know? So that's right. And also when,
2: when emotions are involved, because, you know, like in the media, obviously politics take precedence, but in, you know, individual interactions, because so many people are really frustrated that they can't actually have rational conversations with their, you know, neighbors, friends, and loved ones about this. And it's because, once the emotional you know, state of fear or whatever kicks in, which it, you know, almost anyone that you engage on these topics, that happens very quickly, then all reason goes out the window and you can't sit down and have a calm you know, scientific discussion about what this paper or that paper shows. But right. you know, it's important to note that even among the scientific establishment, they readily admit that at more than half of all their published findings are false. Right. This is in Professor Yo Anita's famous PLOS one article, and that is one of the most widely cited articles. So, you know, that this is there is a consensus among scientists that published research is often false. Yeah. So we simply need to, you know, if it's more than half the time, then every time we look at a paper or a new finding, we have to say more likely than not, this is false and come from that starting position. And that's that's the only way to get close to the truth. I couldn't agree more. Question everything, which the
1: extra part of that is also be open to all possibilities, right? This is not a yes, good absolutely. tagline when it's that long, right? <laughs> Question everything is our tagline for the, the channel. And that's the whole point is we need to be able to have ask these questions, whether it's this topic or, or the one what you just mentioned, and it's it's being shut down. And that is the dishonest nature of all this. And I think that's very obvious. And I think anytime a conversation is being stifled and, you know, not allowing people to have a full, I mean, it shows you there's a level of dishonesty, whether that's because the current status quo is profitable or because there's something else trying to be achieved. Just my, you know, high elevation view right there. I think that's where we're at. But talking about the idea of uh, spread, spreading, transmitting, things like that. So we're told that viruses... Are can spread or be transmitted between people, but bacteria can, like we talked about, can infect you, but not necessarily spread. Well, no, they say
2: they say that bacteria is just as contagious. Um, maybe not every illness, but certainly things like tuberculosis, for or example, that, right? They say that's caused by a bacteria, yeah. Whooping cough is a, another good example. So, uh, strep throat they say is very contagious. So, there are many bacterial related illnesses that they also uh, say are contagious,
1: which is interesting to me, though, because the reason I ask this question is in research of, you know, the other side of the argument, by and large, it's kind of a status quo statement that they don't cause infection. And there's a couple of caveats, but that's kind of a general thing that I keep seeing. And that's why I asked that, because my first thought was like, well, well, whooping cough is an obvious example that seems to be, trans, you know, and I so it, it just speaks to my opinion to the narrative that's put out versus what the fine print says, you know, even on that side of the argument in germ theory that, you know, and so that's what I think is very interesting. So taking that, that conversation that that they are seemingly able to accomplish the same thing in, in, you know, what either sides of these arguments is so bacteria, as I, as I was just referencing a re, the recent the discussion of Bailey says she discussion is that they can the bacteria is associated with diseased tissue, which is kind of what we we're just talking about, but not by invading the body and actually causing that disease. The tissue is already unhealthy, which we were just discussing, It just allows the bacteria to take the upper hand, but it doesn't actually instigate the disease itself. Now, what I want to ask you about is the idea about what we see between people, right? A good example is uh, uh, Epstein uh, Barr virus where what they're arguing is that it's about the weakened immune system that can cause this to happen. And I want to show you something. Uh, oops, that's the wrong page I have up real quick. This one here, which I'm sure you're probably familiar with all this stuff. This is a discussion on Epstein-Barr virus from 2021. And it says that over 90 percent, in fact, 95 percent of adults in the world are infected with this so-called virus. That's what that's what they're saying. And yet they but their argument is and this is from the CDC website itself. That the virus becomes latent in your body. And the argument is because of, you know, antibodies and different things, that's the other part of the discussion. But then it goes on to say, but people with weakened immune systems are more likely to develop symptoms of this. So for me, that doesn't make any sense. Like, first of all, if we're talking about antibodies, why would the immune system be weakening, have an effect on that in regard to the germ theory? But my larger point, and I want your thoughts on this, is this seems to be exactly what terrain theory is saying, that the idea is that you're... Well, that you it doesn't affect you it seems around 95% of people all the time and they're fine but when their immune system gets weakened then suddenly there's a problem so you have any thoughts on that i think that's a very telling crossover there
2: yeah well it's really um you know convenient to say that you know this thing really exists and it only becomes active in certain circumstances so then we can explain why um, you know almost no one's affected by it but if we want to you know really look at uh what's going on in these issues you know a weakened there there aren't um things that just specifically weaken your immune system only you know other than a few pharmaceuticals that are really targeted on that right that are used in certain uh what they call autoimmune diseases but really what we're talking about when someone has a weakened immune system is they're they have a weakened body they're in poor health and it's and it's usually pretty darn severe like One of the most common situations where people would be, quote unquote, immunosuppressed is after receiving cytotoxic chemotherapy. Now, the chemotherapy drugs are not specific for the immune system at all. They are toxic to every part of your body. And of course, when you have damaged and dying cells all over your body, your body is going to call in microorganisms to try and eat that up, and you're going to find those. But when we're talking about you know an Epstein-Barr virus once again we have something that has never been proven to exist the way that they detect you know that 90% of people have this is by an antibody test and you know that is there's all sorts of problems with antibody tests but they certainly don't test directly for the thing you're looking for because they only bind with chemicals they don't bind with organisms And of course, you'll find that that test wasn't validated, just like the PCR test and the antibody test for COVID were not validated. So essentially, is a meaningless uh, test. So you you really what what you find is if you look at the you know I I mean Sam Bailey did a great job with this on her chickenpox um, uh, video because and you know she described the same thing that that I have found all the time is that you see all these papers. And the first line of the paper is, you know, this disease is caused by this virus, right? It's very contagious. That's what it said in the chickenpox. And then you can't ever find a reference where they actually did an experiment to prove that uh, because none of them have been done because none of them exist. I think you're muted, Ryan. Thank you for that. Outside of your conclusion that that
1: they don't exist, what's their argument? Like so, what is their stated argument, or is there even an argument for why they never prove that or why we can't find that evidence?
2: Well, they're trying to make a case that Epstein Barr causes some illness. And they're saying, well, we only see it, you know, in people who are immunocompromised. And so we're trying to still keep this virus involved. But without realizing that, it's actually whatever is causing their, you know, them to be immunocompromised is actually the cause of their illness. It has nothing to do with this, uh, you know, virus being around.
1: That's interesting. So on just on a quick note, what is their argument for what, why, what causes immunocompromised situations in people? Is it just a wide range of things that aren't really defined?
2: Well, no, no, they're, I mean, they're well-defined and it would be, you know, there's certain hereditary, uh, hereditary conditions like uh, severe combined immunodeficiency or SCID, um, there, uh, there's also a gamma and other, you know, kind of uh, childhood uh, type immunosuppressive diseases, then chemotherapy and toxic pharmaceuticals mm-hmm. is another huge cause and they're used for a, a variety of different conditions. Um, even like autoimmune diseases, right? They use a lot of immunosuppressive and cytotoxic drugs, even old school ones like methotrexate and cyclophosphamide, as well as these new antibodies and specific inhibitors or promoters of inflammatory pathways and such. <laughs> so really, most of the causes of immune deficiency are caused by medicine itself, and then then you have you know the uh, the HIV AIDS story, which it was caused by different things in different places, but essentially it was, uh, you know, in the United States, mostly lifestyle related to, uh, drugs of abuse, things like, uh, amyl nitrate poppers, um, people taking prophylactic antibiotics and putting their bodies through just crazy cycles of trauma. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, it was due to, um, uh, um, inhalation of, uh, particulates in the miners in South Africa. And, uh, so, you know, so essentially different toxic substances are what damage the immune system and the body in general. Hmm.
1: Very interesting. It just, it, it just seems like a never ending cycle of this is what I always point out about the drugs that then cause things that are treated by more drugs and on and on and on, which is obviously a fantastic profit model if somebody made it that way. But my, my next point would be about, bacteria and in, in regard to the crossover I see around the concept of how bacteria is kind of like omnipresent. It's just in the world. It's on your body. It's in your, you know, everything. And the argument is that, so viruses are able to be transmitted and spread and that bacteria is just kind of there, but my, is it not the same? So for instance, back to that same point, let's say you're in a household and everybody in that household comes down with the same strep throat or sore throat symptoms. Is that? Could you explain that by arguing that the same that they're all living in the same situation, so they all have like similarly, you know, problematic immune systems, and that the bacteria itself is just there that they're all being inter- introduced to. So it's almost as if you're sharing bacteria, or is there another explanation for why that? So makes sense? the the
2: yeah, the, there's definitely so you know there's a lot to unpack here. So one one thing is, and you're you're kind of uh, you're correct in this aspect that according to germ theory, right, if we could pass these germs, uh, sorry, if the germs are the cause of disease and we live in the same household, everyone should get sick because everyone is getting the germs. But that's not what happens in reality in strep throat. What happens is there's something that causes damage to the throat, right? And most com- uh, one of the most common things actually is eating pasteurized uh, dairy uh, that seems to be causing with this. There's something in the milk that damages the tissue on the way down. And once the the damage is done, then your body puts out a signal to recruit the strep bacteria to that site to essentially clean up the damage. So it comes, the bacteria come from your own body. Now, people do tend to experience this in in clusters, right? And that gives the impression of contagion. But so here's a very important thing to realize is that when, when we observe, something that happens like a pattern of illness in nature, or that we notice people are dying, right? That is what's called epidemiological analysis, or the science of epidemiology, which is descriptive. So all we could say is, oh, well, these, you know, people got sick at the same time, they were in the same place, maybe it's related to the place, let's do further research and look. Because from observing the pattern of illness, you can't tell a anything about the cause, and you can't tell what is responsible for any apparent transmission. You have to do further investigation to look at that. And they've done studies, um, several studies in the early part of the 20th century, starting during the Spanish flu, where they tried to take secretions from someone who was sick, even with a very serious life-threatening illness like the Spanish flu, and put them in healthy people and then see do the healthy people get sick with the same illness. And they've done this about five or six times, several times in humans and also in animals and never have they been able to pass the illness. So in other words, they've essentially disproved that contagion occurs through some kind of agent in bodily secretions.
1: Okay. I was actually you about that specific that specific point. And I think since you brought it up, I'm very interested in that in general. And so, first of all, my question would be how in, in their context of germ theory and if, if that taking that at face value, how easy would it be for that to have taken place? So you take somebody based on what they tell you the truth is, and you try to infect them 50% of the time, like just an estimate. What do you think is the, well, no, worm? I
2: mean, they pretty much, uh, you know, according to germ theory, these germs are hungry for flesh. So, uh, you know, if you pass them, there's no reason it shouldn't happen every single time or close to every single time. And th- and in
1: this case, you're saying, and this is very easy, I, I actually will try to, if you have it, send it to me, I'll try and find that to include in the show notes, that this was done and a lot of, this is a lot of discussion a lot of people have had, that they were unable to infect people by actively trying. And this was during the Kansas flu situation, Spanish flu, that's
2: where it actually started. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. No, I know this, the Spanish have nothing to do with it. right. Right. But, uh, <laughs> But yeah, no, absolutely. And I, I have copies of those papers. I mean, this is not, you know, shoddy science. This was done by the United States Public Health Service. They were the precursor to the CDC and the agency responsible for investigating these public health matters. So, you know, they did the right thing. They did a very strong protocol. They tried like heck to transmit this disease um, because they, they did two additional experiments when the first one was unsuccessful. Uh, thinking they might've just made a small mistake, but they were, you know, try as they might, they were not able to transfer the disease at all. And neither were they in any of the other studies that were done with similar protocols.
1: Have they tried to explain that? Is there is there any explanation out there for why that wasn't able to be done?
2: Well, you know, people don't want to really talk about that if they have a different position, but no, I've never, you know, I've tried to have uh, an honest conversation with mainstream scientists or physicians about these issues but they're really unwilling to have such a discussion so i'd love to you know i'd love to confront them with some of this evidence and ask their opinion or or if they find out if they even know about it right right exactly but but why isn't this experiment done every time they discover a new virus you know right um exactly they'll never be successful
1: Yep. And I think I think it's just about controlling information, especially right now. I mean, we even before all this, it was very contentious. But now it's just there. You are literally not allowed to talk about verifiably true things because it creates vaccine hesitancy and so on. And, you know, we've seen that happen today. So but th- this is this is the part of it that I find to be so interesting to me because I've had I've had a. Uh, People close to me in my life where like a neighbor, let's say, where every single time, like, you know, they all got the flu at the same time and so on, you know, that kind of an argument. So this really gave me an interesting explanation there. I like the idea of so, you know, environmental similar circumstances like you said the milk and so they're living in the same area and so they all cause the same harm essentially and then the bacteria that's omnipresent is a good way to put it just it jumps to action and causes the same problem which is really them trying to heal the problem you caused for yourself is that a fair way to put that yeah
2: yeah that's right and remember the the bacteria is already inside your body it doesn't even you know because the streptococcus that is in strep throat that already grows on your throat it's already right there like if you did, if we did, um, you know, throat cultures of a uh, 100 healthy people, most of them would be positive for strep.
0: Huh.
2: They never do that. Of course, they never do right. the tests in healthy people. Right. So you wouldn't know, but it, you'd find it. It's normally there. It's living, you know, in harmony with your body. And then in that situation where there's damage to your throat, then it has to it has to upregulate and do something a little bit different. Like it has to work harder in that situation. And, right. you know, that's what we're seeing. But also, you know, that not every, not every person that has a throat culture comes back positive for streptococcus because some people might have slightly different bacteria doing this function in their body, maybe depending on where they live or their unique lifestyle or, you know, who knows what factors.
1: Yeah. Well, th- I just thought of a really interesting crossover to me that, that explains quite a bit. And I've been talking about the idea of masks from the very beginning and the obvious, undeniably verifiably obvious point that it can lead to bacterial pneumonia. It can lead to strep. It can lead to a lot of things. And that's a no brainer based on a thousand things of scientific studies before. Today, it's just you're not allowed to say these things out loud. But what's interesting to me is that does seem to perfectly explain what we're dealing with here, that you're wearing something over your mouth that dries out your throat, that causes your body to work harder, it lowers your immune system, I and mean, all these things we're talking about, and strep is one of the most common bacterial aspects of, well, your mouth,
2: at least in, in people, and it gets pulled
1: into your lungs
2: and so on. So you have any thoughts on that? Well, there's, there's a much simpler way to think about the uh, damage that you get from a mask, because anytime something is coming out of your body it means your body is trying to get rid of it, right? And so think about like you must have uh, changed the air filter in your heating system or in your car and saw how much dirt and crap there is on it, right? Well, those things are only on part of the time. Our breathing apparatus is on all the time, right? Otherwise we'd be dead. Hmm. So all of those things in the air are coming into our airways and our when we breathe out, we're breathing out those things that that we're trying to get rid of, as well as the our body's own waste products, okay, which includes toxins, like we can remove toxins through uh, the lungs. Like if, for example, you've smelled alcohol on someone's breath before, right? And part of that is, you know, even hours after they've finished drinking, or we used to give one type of chemotherapy that was dissolved in in alcohol. And we give it intravenous, and you could smell it on their breath, right? So when we're breathing out, we're breathing out the body's toxins and waste products. And carbon dioxide is one of those. That's our metabolic waste. But there are many other things that come out in the breath, including all of the stuff from the air that gets caught in our lungs and airways. It's all coming out in the breath. So when we put something blocking our breath, and I know that, of course, air can get through, right? But a lot of things get trapped there that those waste products and toxins get trapped there. Right. And that is food for microorganisms to grow on. So microorganisms from the air or that come out in our breath actually grow right on the, that uh, face diaper, mm-hmm. right? And th- there've been studies that looked at and identified some kind of bacteria that are associated with scary infections like meningitis and tuberculosis by the way. So if we keep rebreathing in those toxins and poisons that our body is trying to get rid of, it may overwhelm the system and result in an infection. And I've, you know, had people actually come to me as, as a con, uh, consultant for this issue several times. And one person did want; they were required to wear it for work and they went along with it. And after only a few days, they developed pneumonia hmm. Um, and then another person,
1: which then gets labeled COVID-19, by the way, just so we're clear on how this happening today.
2: This particular person, uh, didn't go to the hospital. Um, so it didn't, but it would certainly would have absolutely. And the other person, um, developed a infection called impetigo. That's usually just right around the mouth. Um, and there where you can get some crusty secretions and it's also said to be due to staphylococcus. And so her doctor, she went to a regular doctor first, gave her, you know, first there's a a topical antibiotic, mupiracin, that's supposed to cure that very readily. It didn't work. And then they gave her a pill and then a second stronger antibiotic. And she was taking, for months, she had been taking antibiotics. And not only did it not get better, but it actually spread and finally, it spread in a pattern that matched the shape of the mask.
1: <laughs> You're kidding me. <laughs> so
2: it, it wasn't until then wow. that sh- both she and the doctor realized it was from the mask. So she took the mask off and within 48 hours, it was gone.
1: I would love to see that information. That that is so incredible to me because what bothers me more than anything in that story is that they didn't even think about it until that point. And it's, there's so many obvious realities. Like you just remove the concept of COVID-19 and the mask and what it represents and before this, any concept of blocking your breathing pathogen or any these were common understood things that weren't healthy for you. Actually, in a in a uh I don't know if you know, but I was a chef before I started doing this. And one of the common things that you should teach people in any context of like food is there's four things that lead to very dangerous situations. That's moisture, heat, time, and temperature, right? Oh, or yeah, I guess, yeah. wait, right. I think I'm crossing over time and temperature and heat. Either way, there's one I may be missing. But the point is that that those things lead to guaranteed dangerous situations. And so you have this thing over your mouth, it's moisture and heat and time, and it just sits there. And it's, it's, it blows me away that we're pretending that that's not dangerous. You know, even if you want to pretend it has an effect on the transmission. Anyway, I can go off on that forever. That, that's a hill that I've been dying on for a year. A yes, year and eight yeah, yeah.
2: No, there's, there's nothing at all that makes sense about this mask from a health or medical uh, perspective. It's all for a completely other purpose that, you know, we, we can definitely talk about if you like, but it may be outside of the, our normal purview.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, maybe we can reconnect, or maybe we can talk about it right now or afterward, whatever you feel like. I'm always interested in your thoughts. But the the mask thing seems to really kind of connect with the larger topic here. That you're in, in essence, you're you are hurting your body with this thing, which then creates. I mean, even the studies they have themselves in the context of viruses says that reduce that they, these things can lower your immune system. The only random controlled trial done on mo- on cloth masks very clearly finds that these con the, the things we just described can very seriously lower your immune system. So it's just all in the same. It seems.
2: Yeah, you're right. They did do uh, one randomized control trial where they had N95 masks in one group and they had cloth masks in another group. And the cloth, cloth mask group seemed to have a slightly higher uh, rate of infection. So I think that's what you're referring to. And, um, you know, there there is so much evidence on the masks. Uh, it's it's kind of ridiculous. But what I think the real purpose is, you know, is, first of all, it it, it kills a lot of birds, actually. But but I think the one of the main, main things, and this is a bit of an esoteric explanation, is that it is part of a mass initiation ritual. Hmm. That you, in other words, lose your prior identity in the old normal, right? And then you de-identify yourself through this mask for a period of time. And then when you emerge, you'll be initiated into the the new world order, essentially.
0: Hmm.
1: It, I mean, it, it is, I mean, there is a, endless mountain of documentation, research studies that talk about how all these things, whether lockdown, mass, I mean, these are all classic concepts of of torture, in essence. I mean, that's not even a, a hyperbole. I mean, that's exactly what they've been used for. So it's not hard to see how these things have at least been considered in that context from a power, a position of power. I, I point to the concept of parasite stress theory, I don't know if you may be familiar with, and these are, these are studies that have been done long before this, that uh, they very clearly outline how simply, and they make sure to state this, the, even the threat of a virus doesn't even have to be real, or rather, a pathogen they use can, will drive people to authoritarianism, or rather, to accept authoritarianism and tell on their neighbors and so on. It's impossible for me to think they don't know about this and are at least considering that with where we are right now, based on all the, you know, I mean, they've been exposed for using fear to push these things and, and on and on and on. But,
2: well, but, you're right. It's right out of the communist playbook. And there are many, you know, sources you can look uh, to to learn more about this. But, um, sorry, I just lost my train of thought there. No um, so re- refresh my memory on that last point that you were making.
1: Well, I mean, we, I was just simply adding to what you said in general, actually, if, if I if think it's better, we pull this back into, uh, the terrain theory like we were talking about because I'll keep going down this rabbit hole with you forever on mass. Cause it, trust me, everyone knows it's watching right now. If you get me going on the mass topic, it'll take me, I'll talk about it forever. But you know, like, like I said, a moment ago, I would love, we come, have you back on every week, Dr. Coffin and talk about whatever you find interesting. But so I want to kind of go back to a one point you made there I actually forgot to bring this up. You mentioned the, the Kansas flu, the Spanish flu concept of trying to infect other people. Uh, Dr. Bailey actually brings up a point about the beginning of the 20th century and experience experiments on animals. In fact, keeping them in these like, uh, ca- these uh, specifically made cages they are completely germ free. And they ended up dying all of them within a period of time, which seems to completely challenge the idea that the germs were the, that their viruses were the problem and rather that more so that the bacteria like you're describing or what you are actually essential for life. Right. So what are your thoughts on that?
2: Yeah. Well, um, you know, I experienced something myself that I think also supports that, Um, because, you know, earlier in my career, but when I was still full mainstream, uh, you know, physician, um, I remember that there were certain situations that we would encounter where people couldn't swallow food, right, Uh, because of their illness. And so we had this, you know, you could give IV nutrition, they called it TPN. And I remember thinking, oh, man, that's such a great thing, like it should be they should be do great because we could actually formulate exactly what nutrition they they need, right? And put it right into their veins that they should have great outcomes. But I noticed that all the doctors were really hesitant to put anyone on IV nutrition. And so I began asking around. They're like, oh man, they don't do well on that. You know, it's like, let's try to get their gut working again because, you know, we know that patients do poorly on this. So I'm like, Never really understood that until I started um, learning about terrain theory. Because what's happening when we bypass the gut is we are no longer feeding that huge reservoir of bacteria in our body, and then they, after time, they're going to start to to perish because mm-hmm. they they have no nutrition, and then. That is the cause of essentially all the poor health outcomes. That's really and, fascinating. It, yeah. it
1: almost sounds like something similar to so essentially you're you're creating a secondary source, or I guess more so you're saying it just kills them. But it almost sounds like it's like your body's recognizing it doesn't even need to do this anymore because you're you're helping it with something else. I've heard that comment with drugs in the past where you take a certain drug long enough, your body that your body uses or creates, it'll stop creating it itself. Is there any connection there?
2: Oh yeah, well, uh, absolutely, because it's it's a essentially like a, I mean there, it's a different mechanism because what you're talking about is a negative uh, feedback mechanism. I'm talking about, you know, we're just basically starving all these bacteria to death by mm-hmm. bypassing the gut with all of our nutrition. but but what you bring up that does happen quite a bit. Like um I see this very, very commonly with thyroid patients that they actually were never had a problem with their thyroid. it was it was a misdiagnosis, um, and the system is really set up to make that happen. And then they start taking thyroid hormone, which suppresses their thyroid gland, making its own hormone. And if they, you know, and and this kind of attenuates over time because they often, the thyroid shuts down so much, they have to then take a higher dose of the replacement hormone. And um, it can be difficult to kickstart the gland back into action, but um, people have been successful. Um, Sometimes it might even take a whole year to make that happen. Um, So you definitely do get this. And this is why, you know, I think it's not a good idea to be taking any hormones, even if they're bioidentical, because one is you're not addressing the root cause, which is why is your body not making enough of a certain hormone in the first place, right? And, Mm -hmm. And so you'll never be able to fix the problem if you don't know what the root cause is. But then also, this suppression of your body's own production of the hormones can change the whole way your body functions, and it's not optimal. I mean, you know, thyroid is a a really good example because when most people take a replacement thyroid hormone, it's just one thyroid hormone, so-called T4 but there are, are actually five or six different thyroid hormones that are all in balance with each other. And so they give you this one because it's, you know, what they say is the most active, but then you put it out of balance with the other ones cause you're not getting the other ones. And so what are the long-term effects of that?
1: Right. Right. And that, that, that is interesting to me because there's a quote that I was, uh, I wrote down earlier uh, which is the, the Claude Bernard, the microbe is nothing. The terrain is everything, right? And this is, it's about all about the balance of the body. And it, th- this is the reason I keep saying why this resonates with me so much, because this is like my worldview, like with our, my body and just every, you know, this, it makes more sense that it's about equilibrium, you know, and making sure that you're healthy and that you're not overcompensating one place or the other. Now I have an interesting question for you in regard to, I, I, by the way, I like that the root cause idea. Cause I think that is the biggest issue with the current Western medical system situation is that we are not treating, we're treating symptoms, band-aids on well, bullet holes everywhere. You know, that's most, of like, their, uh,
2: most of their diseases are, have no known cause, right? right. They're unexplained. Well, so I have, in regard to
1: right now, what's happening for uh, the lack of, let's say the lack of, of pre-treatment, right? So right now this big discussion is being had for people that are, Like a personal, somebody in my personal like inner circle of my family is dealing with something like this right now, where they were told they were sick. And this all, by the way, all happened after they went tested and then they got sick, but it's another conversation, but they're told they were sick. Then they got sick. And that was only after they tested because somebody else was told they were sick. And so then they ended up getting some symptoms. So the hospital says, take Tylenol, go home. So I'm going, okay, I've never in my life seen a situation, especially from their perspective where they're telling you, you have the biggest pandemic in a century scenario. And they're going, we're not going to do anything until you get more sick. I don't even understand how that's possible. First of all, seeing as how we have a thousand things that we know would work to increase your immune system, to protect you against other things. But we're in a world now where they just wait for you to get sick, you know, severely sick. And then they complain about how the hospitals are overrun because people are, you know, and it's, it's, it's frustrating to me. But my question for you is the ivermectin, kind of anaphylactic, or excuse me, a a prophylactic, I keep doing that, prophylactic treatments beforehand. Now, what are your thoughts on that? And how does that play into the germ theory, terrain theory conversation? And is that just more of a holistic, keeping your body kind of concept as opposed to treating the cut on your arm, you know, analogy? What are your thoughts?
2: Right. Well, you know, I mean, there's a, first of all, the, the aspect about people, you know, being sent home from the hospital, that's because, you know, they know deep down that people just have colds, right? (laughs) I agree with that. And they certainly, and, you know, it's always been that way in the hospital that you don't really want to deal with anyone at the hospital unless they're really sick, like they're about to die. Right. But if this really were an illness that killed, you know, a lot of people, They wouldn't wait. They would immediately, you know, do the whatever treatment they could. Right. So so it's very telling
1: real quick. I would just argue not so much that I expect them to keep them at the hospital, but just give them any give them something to treat themselves with before it gets bad was my point. You know what I mean? And then also that point that they if it is that bad, then yeah, they probably would keep them there. But anyways, please continue.
2: Yeah. Well, you know, there's no specific treatment. There's no curative treatment that uh, right. is talked about or acknowledged uh, for any virus, really. Acknowledged.
1: Right. Or uh, um, in this case, though, there's plenty of things, as you know, that have been discussed and been tre- been researched that are just being actively dismissed. And that's what's so frustrating about it.
2: Right. And, you know, part of the reason for that is in order to um, have the emergency use authorization, right? There, ha- there can't be any effective alternatives. So if you acknowledge that there might be an effective alternative, then there goes your EUA and there goes your vaccine uh, business. So that, that's a really important point. And then the other issue is that they don't want the public to know about parasites. So parasites are, are really kind of like bacteria, like we were talking about. They only take up residence when there's major toxicity. And they're they're trying to get rid of that, but many times they can't get rid of it and they stick around. Um, so when people have a pneumonia, like one that would land you in the hospital, okay, not not a regular cold, but but a pneumonia, most likely there are parasites involved. And I'm not, you know, positive the exact nature of the parasites, and they may vary from person to person. So they don't not necessarily going to be worms; um, they could be microscopic. But, you know, hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin are both parasite drugs. They kill parasites. And that's why we're seeing, you know, an apparent effectiveness in people with pneumonia because um, essentially their parasites are involved in this d- disease as terms of causing the symptoms through their toxic waste products, just like I described with mm-hmm. a bacterial infection. Um, but now you're interrupting that process, just like you know, the same thing happens when you use antibiotics to in a bacterial situation, that because you kill the parasites, and now they're not having any more secretion. So the inflammation and the coughing and the, uh, you know, shortness of breath goes away. But there's still the toxic mess left in the lungs that wasn't fully cleaned up. So most likely, those people will have another illness, maybe not the same season, maybe it would be the next year. um, But most likely that would um, take place. So I don't really recommend or advocate for this approach because it's once again, not getting at the underlying um, cause. And, you know, I, the way I look at these seasonal colds and flus is that they're an air filter change for your body, that all the stuff you've been breathing in through your airway all year, and then uh, obviously that's worse if you live in a heavily polluted area, or you work around fumes in your job, or you're a smoker, or or you have a terrible lifestyle and toxicity from internal as well. And the more toxic you are and exposure to those things, the more severe you're going to express that cold or flu, um, you know, during the season, most likely. So what um in the natural healing world what they would do is once again essentially support your body's cleansing so one thing is make sure that you're well hydrated because especially if, if you're coughing and having fevers you're going to be dehydrated so you don't want your blood to get too thick because it can't work as well so you got to drink a lot of fluids and then you want to do the same thing that I discussed before is you know do some general cleansing like enemas and in fact um, in the early part of the 20th century, when people had life-threatening infections, enemas was the main treatment, even in the hospital, uh, before antibiotics came into existence. And it's very effective. And then you can um, do some local treatment to the airways. And and that would be, once again, with solvents. Um, so if you um, have mostly nose symptoms and like a post-nasal drip, you can just do neti pots with salt water. Mm-hmm if you have a pneumonia and you're more ill and you have any breathing difficulties then you can do a steam inhalation where you just boil garlic for 10 minutes and then add about five drops of turpentine and inhale the steam infusion Uh, you could do that three times a day and the the people who have done that and told me about it have had great success uh, major improvement within 24 hours and so that would be, you know, the kind of the kind of approach that I would consider if I were uh, facing some kind of upper respiratory illness. Other people use different agents um, like DMSO or even uh, um, chlorine dioxide, mm-hmm. uh, and then you know some vitamins and supplements can be helpful also in this process, like using you know high dose vitamin C, uh, for example. Um, and um, interestingly, I recently. Uh, heard from someone that they had a cold and developed this you know lack of s- loss of smell um, after the cold it persisted and someone suggested that it might be a zinc deficiency and so she took some zinc and lo and behold it went it got better right away and so I hadn't heard of this so I looked up what are the symptoms of a zinc deficiency and there there you go uh, loss of smell was one of them so uh, you know, very really simple, interesting. very simple thing. Yeah, I don't know the explanation uh, why this might occur, but, you know, I've, I've speculated that there could be toxins placed in masks uh, or in nasal swabs. And I mean, we know, for example, for a fact that many of these masks had graphene in them mm-hmm. and some of there were recalls right. because of this in some places, right? So maybe the recalls got some of them, but maybe other ones, you know, still had it.
1: And we've discussed yeah. the ethylene oxide treatment, which is which is dried, but they, on their own site, state that there's residue, which builds up in your body, which I've shown on a show, that's on the end of the treatments they use for testing, right? And these are things that have these negative effects over a long period of time. And if people are testing three times a day for-
2: you right. Know. Well, you're right. If people are really testing multiple times a week with, you know, with the nasal swabs that go to the back, I mean, I that's definitely going to result in some kind of chronic damage and even without the ethylene oxide. Because, mm-hmm. you know, you have to realize that every sterilized instrument that's used in medicine pretty much is sterilized with ethylene oxide. So right. every time they put a tongue depressor in your mouth, you know, one of those tips for the ear thing, all the surgical instruments so that by itself, but but like you said, you know, if you're doing it multiple times a week for right. months and months, then you you know it it's going to be uh, not the greatest situation.
1: Yeah. My, my bigger point on that was to almost in a way to, you know, debunk the larger argument about what that was. But then in my research, I came to find that their own statements were that, well, there is some residue and it, and then I researched that and it showed that it could build up in your body. And so I even came to the end conclusion where it's like, well, sure enough, you shouldn't be doing this constantly. You know, there is a long-term effect and you can't even talk about that stuff.
2: Um, Well, listen, I'm a fan of not poking and prodding the body at all.
0: Mm -hmm. Right.
2: (laughs) You know, like, I don't think there's any real reason for, uh, surgery or injections or anything like that, um, you know, if you're putting something in there, it better be to get something out that that's stuck. <laughs> right, right.
1: And um, by the way, you mentioned the the, ethy- the uh, uh, graphene oxide in, in the masks. There, there's also discussions now of treatments for water and, and lots of different things. And it just kind of leads to this direction that, you know, I've been saying this from the very beginning of this whole thing. It could just be incompetence. Sure, that's always possible. But I have a hard time believing that every single action which seems to be leading directly to a lessening of your health or an increase of your illness, I I find it impossible to believe that's by accident. I mean, every single action that's being taken. Now, that doesn't have to translate that, you know, means they want to kill everybody. It certainly could be. But I think it's pretty interesting that every choice that's being made, whether masks or lockdowns or, you know, you can scientifically show that these things are decreasing your health. Or your, or your you know, safety or any, it just it blows me away that we can't acknowledge these obvious realities. And the ivermectin part of that or, or whatever, hydroxychloroquine, because I, I don't want to support any big pharma drug personally, <laughs> it, it just shows you that there's a will a will willingness to overlook obvious possibilities there. And I, to, to your point, so it seems interesting that so would you argue that something like that would be useful in conjunction with the idea of note, of, of focusing on the body first? Like so if that removes something for like a parasite, then also focusing on your body would be probably the best way to go, I would argue, right? And- like um, I
2: I would, you know, this is, I mean, you know, everyone can have their own opinion and this is, you know, judgment. I don't know everything of how to, you know, deal with every clinical situation. But if someone had life-threatening pneumonia and, you know, they weren't responding well to the natural uh, approach that I described, or they looked like they were crashing, Yeah, I I wouldn't have a problem using ivermectin as a Hail Mary in a time of desperation, uh, because, you know, like, what's the difference if they're going to die? Like, it's what's the harm, right? It's not really a harmful drug anyway. And like, if they die, we can't, we can't continue to work on reversing the root cause. (laughs) We've got to keep them alive first, right? So if we give a Hail Mary dose of that and then they come back and then we can continue to work on the root cause and get them back to health like that that is not unreasonable at all mm-hmm. but i don't think it really provides much more utility other than that you know situation of of desperation
1: interesting it seems that honestly seems to align with my perspective on why these things were pushed early on in in a political sense but one of the things i want to ask you uh before we wrap up here is is you're talking about parasites and i find that really interesting about you know whether that could end up pointing to some sort of a root cause there. So I've heard mention of uh, uh, protozoans in regard to specifically parasitic kinds, like in malaria. Is that kind of what you're talking about? Is that what this discussion is, or is there something more specific?
2: Well, I'm really talking about the full gamut of parasitic organisms, you know, from the single celled all the way up to you know worms. Well, my, I guess
1: my question more specifically would be in regard to how then do those things outside of the ones that can be like directly into your bloodstream, how would they affect you? Would it have to be something that have to go like through a cut or breathe in or how does Well, that these,
2: these are already all over your body. Okay. You just don't don't know about it because they're also ubiquitous in nature, right? You can't eat any piece of meat or or matter of vegetable that doesn't have some kind of parasite in it. And, you know, not all of the parasites that survive on those things may survive in your body but you know you these are all over our bodies and we you know we have ways of managing them like even just the acid in your stomach is a a barrier for them you know getting penetrating in but when our terrain is diseased then they they end up taking up residence right they're opportunistic like there are parasites in in insects and lower organisms that actually are exploitive and really scary you know like they can there's a wasp that can turn this beetle like it does brain surgery on it and turns it into an automaton and like rides it with its horns and then you know uh, hatches its eggs at which eat it from the inside out. Right. So we, we, I'm not talking about that parasite strategy. I'm talking about opportunistic parasites that are attracted to us when we have an excess of toxicity or of sugar in our body. And we're just basically, you know um, to them, it's like staying at the the Ritz, you know, we've created the their version of the Ritz, even though it's uh, not to our taste. And so, you know, when I've worked with a lot of clients that have had certain serious disorders, and I'm talking about you know things like autoimmune disorders and neurologic disorders, and if they decide to go through a protocol that will address the parasites, um, not by using ivermectin, um, but uh, time and time again, I get you know pictures that they send me of worms in the toilet. So, you know, I, in medicine, they, they teach us that parasites only are a problem in developing countries in the third world, and they're not, you know, um, involved in disease in the United States, and you can't even really get a test for them. And there's only one or two that they say ever cause a problem, you know, here, and only in children because they have poor hygiene, right? So like they say, kids with itchy butts have uh, some kind of uh, worm. Uh, like whipworm or something like that. But other than that, they don't acknowledge any real issues, uh, except in pets. And pets then, you know, even though we share the same house with pets, hmm.
0: yeah, that's they
2: they have the um, parasites and we don't, or, or, you know, the animals that we eat for meat. Somehow humans are have a totally different, you know, biology that parasites don't take up residence. So what I found is that actually parasites are quite ubiquitous and often implicated in serious uh, chronic illnesses and acute illnesses. And um, it's something you know to, that we need to acknowledge and be aware of. And, and if we do, we can realize that actually there are ways to address parasites that have been successful for thousands of years. We don't need new pharmaceutical drugs or even pharmaceuticals at all. And I right. think this is part of the reason why they're covering up the benefit of these drugs, because it could expose this issue that parasites are, are actually involved in our health.
1: Right. Right. And so like so many other things we're talking about, you you mentioned opportunistic uh, uh, bacteria, and this is also the interesting discussion of the opportunistic viruses they're talking about, which leads back to the same kind of point here that it all centers around your bodily <laughs> health, your immune system, and whether or not you are healthy first. Right. So it's like the idea that these viruses only come at you because your immune system is lowered again, just seems to be the exact same thing you're saying that it's about your body's health and not the outside concept.
2: Right. Right. Well, you know, the, like the, the bacteria that would come and clean up a damaged area. Remember they're coming because there's food there. Right. Right. Like our dead and dying cells are their food. Right. Just like if, uh, you know, if, uh, apples fall off the apple tree, that's our food. (laughs) right? Right. Um, you know, it's not, maybe not the waste of the tree, but the tree is giving it up for another purpose. Or and,
1: uh, what came to my mind is just the apple falls in the ground and they consume the apple, right? Yeah. Because it gets moldy or whatever else. I mean, that's exactly, the same kind of
2: concept, right? exactly right. And so that's just what's happening. And there's the opportunity of food and the, you know, the bacteria, they don't, they're not, you know, like, I don't think they're thinking to themselves, you know, we're, we're going to help Brian's throat get healthy, right? They're, right. they're not, at that level they're thinking food (laughs) let's go
1: (laughs) you know (laughs) so they're an important point to make there is that they're into so like this is an important point for their their argument is viruses need a host to survive whereas bacteria don't right the idea is that they're they're in your body and that they are Independent, essentially, of your body, but rather in it, as opposed to being a part of it and working to help you. Is that like yeah, what well, you're saying right bacteria
2: there? Bacteria are actual living organisms, right? And, Whereas viruses, uh, right they aren't. they can live they, independently yeah. and yes, and carry out all of the functions that we define as as being of a life form. Whereas you know the the theoretical description of of what a virus is is that it, it, it's not alive or it's not a form of life. Mm-hmm. It's simply genetic information wrapped up in a protein envelope that is in a microscopic particle Hmm. form.
1: Yeah. I mean, it just, and again, to to kind of finish off here, it's, (laughs) I've never, I got to be honest. And I said in the very beginning, like, I feel like, you know, you, you have easily won me over on this conversation today, which you've done before as well, but it, it seems the obvious point for me to finish on is that you have laid out an explanation of this that is easy to understand. Well, I mean, in, for some people, maybe it's, a little complicated but in a sense that if you walk you through it it's it's very clear what you're saying whereas Mm -hmm. on the other side of this conversation it basically comes down to what continues to bother me with what's happening today we're authority this is what science says trust us and it's like there's you dig into these points and as you're saying it's well there's not really defined answers for a lot of things that you have pretty clearly defined answers for on the other side of this argument and so that tends to win me over, right? I mean, because I am getting answers on one part were defined by scientific research. And I think that's a huge point.
2: And this is the principle of Occam's razor, really, that we're talking about, right? Is that when you have a phenomenon that you're trying to explain, that the simplest and most common explanation is the most likely the true explanation, right? And that's what we should be thinking about. Like, Mm -hmm. there's a great example with these, you know, genetic, um, uh, vaccine technology, right? And where they, you've heard a lot of people saying that there's this scary thing, antibody dependent enhancement, or they call it pathogenic priming, Mm -hmm. right? And it's where basically if you have been vaccinated, you know, with these things that they call vaccines, and then you're exposed to the virus, well, your immune system is going to react too much to the virus and it'll basically make you sick and die. Okay. Now that is awfully complicated, right? First, you have to have this thing. It makes you immune. Then you get confronted with the thing that it made you immune to. And then that causes an overreaction, right? And all this. How about this explanation? Vaccine is poison. You inject poison and then you get sick. That's much simpler, right? (laughs) And and that's really the explanation, but they provide these other things to push you in a certain direction. Like they want to keep it alive that you're afraid of viruses, right? So by having that explanation of getting sick from the vaccine, you blame the virus rather than the vaccine. Right. So many times when they add these layers of complexity, it's for a particular purpose to lead you in a certain direction.
1: So since you bring that up, cause I'm very interested in that topic in general. So what would be the argument then that, so people, so I guess the argument would be that the injection is just not hurting everybody. So some of them get it and some of them had this bad reaction because yeah, I guess the argument would be that there's a lot of people getting this injection. And so why wouldn't that poison be hurting all of them the same?
2: Yeah. Well, it's, it's difficult to, to answer that actually, mm-hmm. but there is some, you know, and this is not, valid scientific evidence um, because it's really hard to study this but there's some evidence that there may not even be the same thing in every vial of these products mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. other words from some vials may be blanks um you well, know
1: in, in japan with the the they just proved that there was a magnetic metal material they think it was metal that they just saw in japan did you see that
2: no, I haven't seen they're, this one yet.
1: Yeah, they were contaminated. Uh, shoot, if I had, I, I don't think we'll have to find it, but I'll include it in the show notes. Uh, it came out; of, they came out of Japan, and this is coming from their from their government. And they're they already recalled I think 1.6 million, uh, and they're basically saying that it's already killed people. There's a lot of examples of people getting sick. They're calling it contaminated. But this is an interesting crossover with the conversation of people claiming there's graphene oxide or plenty of other things in these. And they just found it, or even the magnetic discussion, you know, just there's a lot of these things being floated, but this is real from the government saying they found this and they've already pulled it. So it just speaks to that interesting problem, about maybe they're different or maybe they're all that dangerous. It's interesting. What are your thoughts?
2: Yeah. I mean, it's really, really hard to tell because we know that these pharmaceutical companies cannot be trusted to disclose exactly what they're doing. And then interestingly, I learned from, uh, karen kingston recently that they have suspended the requirement for gmp's or good manufacturing procedures right which is uh, something that you know i used to work in the biotech industry and that was part of my job was writing uh, protocols for gmp's hmm. and uh so you could see how if that is gone that there's all sorts of mistakes and sloppiness that can happen when mm-hmm. you're manufacturing something as complex as a pharmaceutical maybe so cutting corners. Yeah. So it could just be that they're like, we need to manufacture a lot of these in a super short time, way faster than normal. And we're going to cut some corners. And, you know, since we have no liability, what's the difference (laughs) if someone gets hurt or doesn't get the full benefit, uh, you know, as a result. And so there could be a lot of that happening. And then there's also just, there, there are different vulnerabilities to toxins depending on, you know, your health if you're someone that is uh, very healthy and you're frequently doing things to detox yourself, then if you get exposed to a toxin at a certain level, it may not be enough to make you sick. Whereas another person who already has a toxic burden may get sick from that low dose. But if you keep pushing it up, you know, that there will be a point where everyone will be affected. It's not, you know, it's pretty cut or dry depending on the toxicity of the substance, like, you know, with mercury, you know, if you, if you give enough, you can guarantee that everyone is going to be sick from it. So, so, you know, there could be some just of that variation, depending on what, what the dosages of various toxic materials, you know, in these things, it's, it's really surprising to me that there's actually such heterogeneity in, in the uh, responses.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, what's so incredible is it's, it's again, to the other point is there, this is a willful disregard for some obvious potential dangers, right? I mean, this alone right here is something that you can't even talk about this as a possibility in the mainstream media today or in, in social media, or I've already seen somebody be met, labeled as misinformation for posting this concept, this content, you know, and it just shows you this, this willful disregard for things that are happening right around us right now. Well,
2: even in the mainstream media, you can't even talk about um, the FDA's own various database.
1: Right. Right. So, Well, um, on another note, since you bring that up, I'm probably going to talk about this today. There was, there's a post directly from the CDC on a a government website that talks about them now estimating, we're looking at potentially 150,000 deaths from this injection. That's that's from the CDC documentation. So this is new stuff coming out. So I'm gonna have to dig through this today. But the point is that this is beginning to leak out all these different directions, but you know, we can, this is getting into the whole COVID-19 discussion, which I'm sure we could talk about for four hours straight, you know?
2: <laughs> Easily.
1: Right. But to, to kind of wrap us up here, because I'm this is i really, thank you again for taking the time to have this conversation with me again, because I know it's, you know, you've been really, you know, dying on the sill as it were, trying to get this information out there. And, you know, it must be difficult, even for someone like myself that has already heard you talk about it. You know, it's just, I'm really trying very diff- very hard to be as objective as possible, but I got to say, this is it's pretty damn convincing, at least at the end of the day, when having answers on one side and none on the other. And I think it kind of leaves us with the idea of profit in my mind, where germ theory seems like a clear cut path for big pharma profit, right? As I've seen listed, one disease, one cause, one cure. That's not how the world works. That's obviously not even how big pharma works, but yet that's what for the model we're still trying to drive in. So if <laughs> you have any thoughts on that to leave us with? Thank you for being here. I really enjoyed talking to you today.
2: Yeah, well, uh, and and I as well. And, you know, they uh, there is a quote from someone that says, you know, if germ theory were true, there would be no one left alive to believe it. And so, you know, I, I think it's really difficult to change your view about a foundational issue, you know, an underlying paradigm Um, and because we all have grown up, you know, from day one being told germ theory is the way that disease works. And so it's difficult to undo something at that deep level. And it it could be very contentious, uh, for people because you, you have to say that the establishment of medicine in its entirety is wrong. And it's very, you know, that's a tough position, um, to be in, but so, I don't mind, you know, talking about this over and over again because it takes repetition and it takes nuance and to ask the questions in a different way and get a slightly different explanation before it can really gel and make sense. And you know, there have been a number of people who, you know, after talking to me and others and doing their own research have changed their mind just like I did. I mean, I had to change my view on this also from the mainstream to this position. And it takes some time when you first do this, you still are caught thinking in germ theory ways when you're talking Mm -hmm. about related subjects and it's got to like percolate into the deep recesses, you know, of your soul (laughs) before you can, uh, you know, totally uh, embody this. Mm -hmm. But once you are able to reach that point, it, it is extremely liberating because you come to the realization that you are empowered to take control over your health, right? And that no, there's no insult that you can't address through changes to your behavior and things you can do on your own without needing to go to any professional or you know use anything that is uh, regulated by the FDA or the DEA. Mm-hmm. And so it's really empowering because you can take care of yourself, your family with almost no need ever um, you know, maybe the one exception is serious trauma, like from a car accident, but really, every other condition you can learn to manage at home. and you can also, more importantly, um, be proactive so that you don't have any health problems, right that's right. and and th- that's what we really need to be doing now to face this situation. But in the future, like that is just a much better place to be, you know that, look at the people who are using the healthcare system look at the state of people as they age in our society that they're just on more and more medications they Mm -hmm. uh you know have no ability to function for themselves they're just dependent you know and more and more dependent like little children and i don't believe that's the way that it has to be i think people can maintain their vitality and independence uh, throughout their entire lifespan if they simply um kind of wake up to the truth about about health and biology and then take some action
1: right i mean you can easily show that life expectancy has in fact been decreasing you know, intermittently, I mean, there's ups and downs, but it's been generally decreasing for quite a while. And that doesn't seem to jibe with the whole argument that our, you know, increasing scientific reality is extending our life, maybe for certain people in very profitable or you know, powerful positions that using things we don't know about, but not, not in the normal well, context of our life. Right if you
2: if you look, um, there are groups of people, and many of them are still existing today, where they live to 120, 130 years. I, you know, it's funny
1: you say that. I actually read something a long time ago about a a, a um I, what's the right word for it? It's a, it's a mountain, but it's in a plateau within the mountain in Japan, and it's this mm-hmm. little this little community that lives in there. That all of them have like an exponentially longer lifespan, like exactly like you're saying. And it, I I was an article about it a while back, and I personally was like, it's lifestyle. I mean, it's the fact of what they're eating, the way they're living, and it's exactly speaks to what you're saying.
2: Yes. Yeah. And there are several other examples of of groups uh, around the world who have achieved the same thing and they have the same things in common, like they don't eat the same kind of diets or anything, but they all have a lifestyle that is really very, very different from our uh, Western cultural lifestyle. Right.
1: What's an interesting point to make, too, is that, you know, someone jokingly asked this, like, it's it's weird that the Taliban hasn't been overrun by this problem with the Delta variant or, you know, the same kind of thing. There's plenty of examples around the world right now where people are just who are like not part of the, the discussion, you know, in a different part of the world or just like it, it doesn't matter. Or even how like in the in during all this, there's plenty of examples they're pointing to in Africa, but it doesn't seem to be the same problem. You know, it just doesn't make sense, especially when the argument that, you know, it, it just speaks to the illusion of the larger discussion. Right. Having. Well, okay.
2: you know that if we if we didn't have um, television or internet news channels, right. and no one was wearing masks, you'd have no idea that there was anything going on with anyone's health out of the ordinary because there isn't. I agree. I agree. Yeah, I, that's the best part about it is it's
1: it, it, like the, the we used to say in the starting, look out your window. Right. I mean, like, do you feel like something bad if the media is screaming that you're all in danger, but you don't really feel you know, at least consider the possibility that that may not be the, the full truth. And, and to, to finish off here, I wanted to ask you your opinion on this. I mentioned this earlier before we got started, sort of unrelated, but sort of tied in with the idea of the illusion of of, you know, pandemics in general. Right. Which speaks to the larger point. And this is a this is a statement that I've shared a lot for uh, over oh, since the beginning of this and even before that was put out by the W.H.O uh, on 2011. Now this funny enough, just before I even read the quick parts, I'm going to read after, since this pan since this situation has begun, this has been removed. And now, but it says maintenance break though. Right. And it's the only page on the entire website. Actually a month ago, it said re we were reorganizing the website, but everything else was normal. I just think it's very telling that since we've been reporting this main page as a way to undermine what they're doing, it's been removed. Now, here's the point. They came out with this bulletin. They said health is more than influenza in 2011. Let me just read you these quick experts and get your thoughts on it. It says the repeated pandemic health scares caused by the avian H5N1 and the new H1N1 human influenza virus are part of the culture of fear. Now, obviously, these people are of the mindset that viruses are real, but their argument is that it wasn't actually what they were being sold. It was a culture of fear in both pandemics of fear. The, the WHO says the exaggerated claims of a severe public health threat stemmed primarily from disease advocacy by influenza experts, like Anthony Fauci. Health scares induced by influenza experts with vested interest in exaggeration. Disease experts wish to capture public attention and sway resource allocation decisions in favor of the disease of their interest. Finally, it says the key to responsible policy making is not bureaucracy, but accountability and independence from interest groups. Decisions must be based on adaptive responses to emerging problems. Not on definitions. So, I, if you haven't seen that before, I'd love your thoughts on what you you know how interesting that is that we can't even. I mean, that was stated by the WHO, but yeah, right, right. exact situation all these years later.
2: Well, my first thought is uh, I wonder if they fired that person who wrote that from the WHO before the COVID I look, pandemic.
1: I look into that. Uh, both of them, in fact, have are, are no longer there. One of and both of which, weirdly, basically have gaps on their Twitter feeds since the pandemic began. That's I, that doesn't have to mean anything, but I noticed that, and I thought that was pretty interesting. Well,
2: that is awfully suspicious. You know, sometimes um, these places do disclosure like this; they tell us the truth in a small, unsuspecting way. That you know, like how many other people found that page on the website, and then when people did find it, they took it down. But this is, um, you know first of all, we have to realize that this is not the first rodeo with a fake pandemic. This has been going on for decades. And if you look back at the 60 minutes um, coverage related to the swine flu pandemic in the seventies, I think it'll become all clear because they did the same exact tricks there, except there they they got in trouble. There, there actually was accountability, but they you know inflated the the danger of the swine flu, um, by giving fake information, you know, in that 60 minutes piece, Mike Wallace actually asks the, um, the, the main person from the CDC, you know, how many cases were there? And it was like, there were no cases, <laughs> zero. And, uh, you know, it's kind of like now in uh, New Zealand where they locked the entire country down because of one person has a positive PCR test. But in the case of the swine flu, even though they had, they also had an experimental vaccine and they marched people up to take it. And I remember my parents actually going to the local armory to uh, roll up their sleeves, but then people did get sick, but there were only, I believe 53 suspicious deaths and they took the, the vaccine off the market. They pulled it. So we, you know, there's that saying that we come across all the time, that those who don't learn history are doomed to repeat it. And despite hearing that, we're we're repeating it all the time, Mm -hmm. right? We've been through this and it's the same exact thing now, except people, you know, we have now officially reported something like 12 or 13,000 suspicious deaths, right? That's a thousand times more than in the 70s and in, and there's not only no discussion about taking it off the market instead the FDA is trying to give full approval right so essentially people are really not thinking at all about anything if they're buying what's going on right now
1: yep yep yeah. well put i mean it, there's so many reasons to question our authority structure far far more than just health and it's incredible to me that it's even more so in a specific point about people that have been challenging the government's stance on foreign policy and how they're lying about this or that war. And then suddenly just completely get snowed by a health policy in the same kind of coercive way. We, we have every reason to question these people in, a, in, in authority figures positions, and we need to apply that to health and in, in obvious ways. So thank you. Thank you so much for being here today. I'm going to go ahead and leave us out today with a clip that I have of that swine flu deception, as I call it from, from 76. And, and as well as the ones after that too, I believe, I forget the year on the next swine flu deception, but this has happened more than once as you point out. So
2: absolutely.
1: But thank you so much for being here, Dr. Kaufman, and, and we will have to connect again. So thank you. And Good as best. always, everybody out there question everything, come to your own conclusions. Stay vigilant.
0: The swine flu scare of 1976, that was the year the US government told us all that swine flu could turn out to be a killer that could spread across the nation. And Washington decided that every man, woman and child in the nation should get a shot to prevent a nationwide outbreak, a pandemic. 46 million of us obediently took the shot. And now 4,000 Americans are claiming damages from Uncle Sam amounting to three and a half billion dollars because of what happened when they took that shot. By far the greatest number of the claims, two-thirds of them, are for neurological damage or even death, allegedly triggered by the flu shot. We pick up the story back in 1976 when the threat posed by the swine flu virus seemed very real indeed. Where did this so-called deadly variety of flu, where did it first hit back in 1976? It began right here at Fort Dixon, New Jersey in January of that year when a number of recruits began to complain of respiratory ailments, something like the common cold. Dr. David Sensor, then head of the CDC, the Center for Disease Control in Atlanta, is now in private industry. He devised the swine flu program, and he pushed it. You began to give flu shots to the American people in October of 76. October 1st. By that time, how many cases of swine flu around the world had been reported? There had been uh, several reported, but none confirmed. There had been cases in uh, uh, Australia that were reported by the press, uh, by the news media. There were cases in... uh... None confirmed. Did you ever uncover any other outbreaks of swine flu? Anywhere in the world? No. Now, nearly everyone was to receive the shot in a public health facility where a doctor might not be present. Therefore, it was up to the CDC to come up with some kind of official consent form giving the public all the information it needed about the swine flu shot. This form stated that the swine flu vaccine had been tested. What it didn't say was that after those tests were completed, the scientists developed another vaccine, and that was the one given to most of the 46 million who took the shot. That vaccine was called X53A. Was X53A ever field tested? Uh, I... I can't say. I would have to, uh... It wasn't. Well, I don't know. Well, I would think that you're in charge of the program. I would have to check, uh, the records. I haven't, uh, looked at this in some time. But did anyone ever come to you and say, you know something, fellas? There's the possibility of neurological damage if you get into a mass immunization program. No. No one ever did? No. Do you know Michael Hatwick? Yes, mm-hmm. Dr. Michael Hatwick directed the surveillance team for the swine flu program at the CDC. His job was to find out what possible complications could arise from taking the shot and to report his findings to those in charge. Did you know ahead of time, Dr. Hatwick, that there had been case reports of neurological disorders, neurological illness, apparently associated with the injection of influenza vaccine? Absolutely. You did? Yes. How'd you know that? By review of the literature. So you told your superiors, the men in charge of the swine flu immunization program, about the possibility of neurological disorders? Absolutely. What would you say if I told you that your superiors say that you never told them about the possibility of neurological complications? That's nonsense. I can't believe that they would say that they did not know that there were neurological illnesses associated with influenza vaccination. That simply is not true. We did know that. I've said that Dr. Hatwick had never told me of uh, his feelings on this subject. Uh, And he's lying. I guess you would have to um, make that assumption. Then why does this report from your own agency dated July 1976 list neurological complications as a possibility? I think the... uh, consensus of uh, the scientific community was that the evidence relating neurologic disorders to influenza immunization uh, was such that they did not feel that this association was a real one. You didn't feel it was necessary to tell the American people that information? Uh, I think that uh, over the the years we have tried to inform the American people as, as fully as possible.